first off, I want to apologize that the backdrop uh, that I'm in looks like I lost all my money in crypto and had to downsize. Uh, I can assure you only half of that is true. Uh, <laughs> we're all half the man or woman that we once were. I mean, the uh, the world changes very rapidly. It could change once again. You know, it's hard, hard to predict the the price movements. Uh, but having said that, uh, I've experienced, this is my eighth bear market. And so I'm here to tell your viewers and listeners they'll survive. Um, but I think what you have to always do is keep a little powder dry because when uh, the markets get lean, they get lean in a hurry uh, and they always look the worst before they start turning. You know, I, I, I'm watching full on capitulation in certain sectors of the economy. And uh, people said, okay, well, that's it. You know, there'll be no more crypto or, you know, in 2000, March of 2000, Scott, Amazon's going out of business. You know, it went from 116 to six. And so therefore it has to be completely going out of business. But I remember what Jeff Bezos said at the 20th anniversary of the public offering. During that period of time, revenues were going up, customer base was going up, stock market was going down. So, you know, ultimately the markets long-term are a weighing machine. In the short-term, they're a voting machine. They can get very discombobulated in the beginning, but we'll see. But uh, I have no doubt you'll be in a mansion before too long. <laughs> From the bottom, ain't no half-stepping. I'm the dog, I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach, and it ain't no half-repping. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions. Anthony Scaramucci is an American entrepreneur, author, podcaster, and founding member of Skybridge Capital. He is the chairman of SALT, a global thought leadership and networking forum encompassing finance, technology, and geopolitics. He also served as White House communications director under US President Trump. He's also a father and a husband. So Mr. Mooch, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. It's great to be here. First question, my friend, is did you really buy the Batmobile one time? I did. I'm sorry. You, you did your research. Well, I actually, uh, I own the, uh, I mean, it's probably politically incorrect to say this, but if you go to chickslovethecar.com, chickslovethecar, I'm probably not even allowed <laughs> to say that anymore, but uh, um, you'll see a picture of it. It was from Batman Returns. It was uh, Michael Keaton played Batman. And of course, uh, Danny DeVito was the penguin and, Michelle Pfeiffer was the cat woman. Uh, the car was spectacular and it wasn't road ready or anything like that. It was very low to the ground. So I did a lot of scraping when I was driving it, but it had a propane tank on the back that shot the fire out. Okay. And the car was actually built on a Ford F-150 frame. Um, and so, you know, I, I grew up in a family that loves cars. My uncle was a motorcycle enthusiast. He had a motorcycle shop in the town that I grew up in. And I will say this to you, that car uh, was some of the most fun I've had in my life. I dressed up on Halloween once, was in the Batmobile, driving around in the goddamn <laughs> car in my hometown. You know, Of course, there was no license plate. There was no license plate on the car, but the cops got a kick out of it. They didn't give me any problem. You know, Man, that's so badass. That, that car is actually now in a museum. It's in a, in a museum in Abu Dhabi. It was bought by uh, uh, the museum curator from me and my cousin. Uh, and we made the decision to sell it because we thought that it needed to be on public display somewhere. Uh, we used to put it at the Javits Center for the uh, car shows. 
And I'm like, this is really, you know, we need to, people need to see this car. It's just not, not something that we, you know, well, him and I are like hanging out in it in the garage that we rented. It's not, it's not benefiting anybody. So we sold it to a, a museum. That's so cool. Do you have a favorite Batmobile now? Of course. I mean, I, you know, you have to, I'm going to date myself. Okay. My favorite Batmobile is the one that Adam West was driving. You know, of course the, uh, the original 1966 Batmobile which was on a Ford Futurama f- frame. Um, and I, I love that car. And I almost bought one of them. Okay. They, there's a several of those, uh, but we bought the, uh, we bought the Batman returns one. I thought, I thought it would, it would, it would be more of a reserve of value because there were so few of the Batman returns. There were only three of those cars. I think there were 40 of the 1960 cars that were made for that television show. Wow. That's cool, man. Yeah, I know a lot about cars. I love cars. Yeah, look, I'm a nouveau riche Italian from Long Island. I grew up in a blue collar family, so I know a lot about cars. Well, what do you drive now? I got a lot of cars. You know, I've I've got a Lamborghini. (laughs) I've got a Rolls Royce. I mean, I do have a lot of cars. I have a Mercedes. I mean, you know, listen, don't judge me. I just, when you grow up with no money, you idealize your life. Like if I can make it in America or make it in New York someday, I'd like to have some nice cars. So I do have a couple of nice cars. So tell me about uh, your thoughts on the current market conditions, uh, both in TradFi and in crypto. Where do you see us going uh, for the rest of the year? Well, listen, I mean, the the markets have had the worst uh, six months since 1970. If you measure the markets going back 52 years, uh, the forward six months in 1970, the markets were plus 27%. I think the markets are going to rally into the back half of the year. I think they probably overshot in the first half of the year in terms of the negativity. I think that unfortunately, we're probably already in a recession. And so what ends up happening is when you go into a recession, I think the Fed fears the recession more than it fears inflation. And so they're going to start cutting guidance, I think, even as early as September or October, the market will rally into that. There'll be more than just a quote unquote bear market relief rally. There'll be like people getting ready for the next bullish cycle. Um, I think what I don't know the answer to, and obviously I don't know the answer to that either. I'm speculating, but I I, I would say are the infl- the inflation data. Uh, I've been wrong on the inflation data. You know, I, if you had asked me when the Fed was saying that the inflation is transitory that I believe that was the case, I would have said yes. If you ask me today, is the inflation systemic? Are we in full-on 1970-style secular inflation? I still don't believe that. The the economic data is not suggesting that. If you just just look at where the tips are, the inflation-protected treasuries, they're not there. If you look at where the th- the 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 ten year rolled in the last two weeks, ten years rolling back into the two fifties, uh, down from three percent. So we're not there. If you look at gas prices, we've had twenty two straight days of gas price declines. And if you are a rationalist, and here's the thing, I would tell your viewers and listeners: none of us are rationalists. All of us are emotional, so don't even pretend. But let's just pretend for one minute that you and I were computers and we were rationalists. You would then step back from the data and say, okay, what is happening? And then I think what's happening is you have a supply side inflation, meaning the supply chain got disrupted by COVID-19 as a result of which you've got a shortage in supplies 
at the same time that you inducted all of this money into the capital stream uh, to try to help people during COVID-19. You know, the government probably spent $6 trillion, some of it in uh, debt spending, you know, giving people checks, purchase protection, payroll protection, whatever they were calling it. And some of it is just an interest rate declines and buying up securities in the market to try to improve liquidity in the market. And so um, if you put 42% more dollars into the system, and that's more or less what we did over the last two years, and then you have a supply chain that's constraining supply, more money in the system, less supply, prices are going to go up. So question is, is that sustainable? I don't believe it is. The Fed is now trying to slow that down. Jawboning the interest rates knocked the wind out of the market. Uh, that decelerates the wealth effect. It lowers consumption. Uh, I think we're already in a recession. I think the data will prove that by the end of the year. They'll have two successive quarters of negative growth. And the Fed is going to have to switch its policy stance. And so I believe that they will. Um, just the question is, how long is the inflation going to last? I thought it would have already abated. Uh, and so maybe it rolls by the first quarter of 2023. We get back to the fourth quarter of 2019, sometime late 2023. And so we'll have had a four-year disruption in economic activity and our growth pattern as a result of COVID-19 and our policy decisions and the inflation and all that stuff. But Sometime in late 2023, we'll be looking back and saying, wow, that was a really rough time for everybody, but the economy's back in equipoise. What are your thoughts on the Federal Reserve and their just their reactions generally? They seem to always overreact in one direction and then have to compensate in another. Well, one of the things I learned in Washington in my 11 disastrous days is that these jobs are wickedly hard. It's very easy to armchair from the side. Mm -hmm. I would tell people listening to your show if you read the presidential daily brief, if you have the, you know, if you've got the national security clearance, or you're actually reading the brief, and you're looking at what's going on around the world and what's on the president's desk, I think it, it's it, it's a it's a game changing, it's a life changing thing to have happen to you because if it's on the president's desk, it means that there were five thousand people in the government that couldn't make the decision. So now this is a very difficult decision. It's a bad outcome or a horrific outcome, and you're not sure what to do. It's very vexing. And then when you read the brief, there's no certainties in the brief either. You know, So you have 85% chance of this, 35% chance of that. The CIA thinks this, but we're not sure. Remember, there was only a 65% probability that Osama bin Laden was actually in that house in Abbottabad. Mm -hmm. And why am I bringing that up? Because I think it's the same thing with the Federal Reserve. You switch over. You move down the uh, street, uh, you go to the Federal Reserve. I think the chairman is dealing with the same sorts of unknowns. You have known unknowns. And as Rumsfeld would say, you have unknown unknowns. And so he's sitting there and he only has this blunt instrument of calibration. He can go up and down in interest rates and he can try to influence the economy with that. Or we could do quantitative easing, which is a form of in interest rate influence as well, because you're just buying later stages of the uh, yield curve. So so to me, I think it's impossible, impossible. It's an impossible task. We consider Monday morning quarterback and say, oh, he did a terrible job. He should have gotten ahead of it. Uh, but I think there were reasons why he didn't get ahead of it. You know, he was so worried about the standstill in the economy. And let's take everybody back. I mean, we were in our houses 
we were told don't leave the house and uh, wear gloves and a face mask if you got to go buy food and leave the food outside the door and like wash the food before you bring it in. We, 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 and, and we still don't know a lot about this virus, you know? And so, so I think it's very hard to be overly critical of him or the, or the team. And so by and large, I think they're well-intentioned. They're trying to do a good job. Uh, I think the moves he's making right now are necessary. Um, if you're asking me to be a Monday morning quarterback, I think he needed to be more aggressive. If he dropped 100 basis points on the market last time, I think that would have sent a message to people, a better message, sharper message. You could have had more of a rally uh, in markets if he did that. Anthony, I think that's a really great perspective because we're so used to finger wagging in this world where we have social media at our fingertips. And so I think your perspective of what it's like to be in the White House and I'm a matter. lifelong finger wagger, by the way, I, I, I'm not I'm not sitting. I hope I'm not coming across as sanctimonious to anybody. No, no, I've been no, hum- not at all. I've been humbled by life and I've been humbled by markets. And but I. I, I remember leaving the White House, uh, you know, and I was blown out the front door. I was uh, excoriated in the press, ripped up by the late night comedians. All of that was uh, horrifying in some ways and also, you know, uh, clarifying, you know. And, and I remember writing some stuff down because I wanted to remember things and I, and I wanted to write down some of my observations. And one of my observations was, wow. Uh, these jobs are way harder than people think, and especially the presidency. Uh, the presidency, you know, Trump didn't have the intellectual curiosity to really want to be president. He loved the attention, but he wasn't doing the homework necessary to be president. You could hate Barack Obama or hate George Bush, but they were at least doing the homework. They were reading the briefing books. They were following what was going on. And they were trying to come up with a good decision. You see what I mean? So these jobs are really hard. Scott, I wouldn't, you know, so I, I don't want to be that guy anymore that is the finger wagger. I want to explain to people, jobs are really hard. People are trying to do the best that they can in the circumstances. Uh, they'll get some things right. They'll get some things wrong. And then they'll get really lucky. And sometimes history makes the person, you know, and they, they, they're sitting in the seat at the right time when good things happen and they get the accolades. Let's switch to crypto really quick. Um, mm-hmm. Give me your opinion about three arrows capital and the situation around leverage in crypto. You know, we seem to have had a, a domino effect around the sector, and now it's hard to go a day without a headline of some other uh, exchange going down or, you know, former CFI protocol, you know, failing. Is this a wake up for crypto? What are your thoughts around? the leverage situation that we're, you know, hopefully done going through now. You know, it feels like there was fraud there, you know, and I, I don't want to be, I'm not a DA or a prosecutor, but it feels like they were double collateralizing. And I think they were signaling to different people they were borrowing money from that they had collateral that they didn't have. And so it's almost like uh, Bernie Madoff got married to John Merriweather from long-term capital management. So who the hell is that? Because your viewers are probably young. In 1998, 24 short years ago, a group of people at long-term capital management in Connecticut almost took out the markets, lights out. And uh, they seized the markets. They had a one and a quarter billion dollars of assets under management, but they had locked up um, one and a half trillion dollars worth of derivatives. And the markets were going against them 
and the whole market was seizing it. It forced the Federal Reserve in 1998 to intervene, and it made the bank step in and buy out long-term capital management. So it was a private buyout, and then the Fed cut rates and the market rallied. But why am I bringing that up? Because there are no new mistakes, Scott. No new mistakes. Everyone's making the same old mistakes. I overbelieve in myself. I'm overconfident in my positions. Bitcoin's at 60. Could it trade to 50? Sure. Could it go to 45 temporarily? Yes. Is it going to 24,000? No. It's never going to 24,000. So I'm going to create a stable coin and use Bitcoin as collateral. I'm going to call that Terra Luna. I'm going to make my borrowing decisions based on a floor, in my mind, not a floor based on what could happen in the markets, of what I'm going to do with my investment decisions. And so people have done that throughout time. Uh, we, we saw that in 2000, March of 2000, the entire NASDAQ imploded. It went from 5,400 to 2,300. We're watching that in crypto right now. This is the same wreckage, the same fire that took place in March of 2000. Now, here's the problem. If you look at what's happening right now and you say, okay, I got burnt at this hot stove. I'm never touching this again. And a lot of people will go on to say that. They may miss the biggest investment opportunity of their lives. If you walked away from Amazon, when Amazon went from 116 to $6 in the year 2000, you walked away from Amazon. You know, a $10,000 investment in Amazon on its IPO uh, is worth $14 million today. If you, if you went to the peak six, eight months ago, it was $22 million. And so right now, it's still worth $14 million, a $10,000 investment. So if you walked away from that, you missed a generational opportunity to transform your life and transform your world. And so I would tell people, don't step out of these new technologies. I would say, be patient, stay in them. Uh, the excesses that we just witnessed have burnt a lot of people. Hopefully, that will lead to less leverage in the system going forward. But the technologies are there. The applications are there. The use cases are growing. Uh, and this is a world that I want to be in. Even if I had to shed some of my assets, sell some of my cars, uh, no problem. I'm happy to do that. I need to stay in this because I think it's super important to be a part of it. How do you stay level-headed during times of uncertainty? I mean, you, you seem like uh, like very reassured. And that helps me as someone who feels like I need to reassure myself of the technology. Oh, so so what's well, the process for you? 1998, I'm 58. This is my, I'm 58 this is my eighth bear market. So in 1998, when I was 34, 24 years ago, um, perhaps I was showing no signs of panic, but I was panicked. And I was a younger man who was making assumptions about the market and making assumptions about my career that I thought were going to pan out. And they weren't panning out because of the corrective forces of the market. And so what did that cause me to do? It caused me to tighten up my risk parameters. It caused me to use less leverage. If I didn't have the painful panicking experience of 1998, I wouldn't have been prepared for 2008. 2008, the global financial crisis took a lot of my friends to the cleaners. You know, I was able to stay in business and I was able to grow my business and reformat my business uh, 14 years ago. Um, 2022, it's a lot like 2008. It's a lot like 2000, the year 2000. Um, our business has shrunk like many people's businesses. 
but I have absolutely no leverage in the business. And I've had 33 years of making decent money on Wall Street. And so I have some assets and I can stay patient. I have some level of financial independence. I think it makes you saner and it provides you with a tighter perspective. But no, I mean, you know, I think people panic for different reasons. They panic when they have high expectations that go the wrong way. I think my expectations have been tempered by getting my ass kicked for 34 years. You know, I'm in the business 34 years, gotten my ass kicked the whole time. So this is not something that I'm not used to. It seems like a lot of uh, issues that happen with, you know, whether it's a traditional market or a crypto market has to do with leverage. So why why do you think people are so attracted to leverage, even though ultimately it seems to cause a lot of problems? For, for, well, for all the obvious reasons, it causes problems on the way down, but it's an unbelievable wealth creator on the way up. You know, most of the great wealth in our society, uh, particularly if the people are starting from zero, it has to come from leverage. I mean, just think of for a moment, um, you're buying your house, you're a first time house owner, maybe you grew up in a blue collar family like me, you're going to buy your house. I couldn't afford my first house. I may have paid cash for my last one, but I can't tell you that I could have afforded my first one. And so I bought the house, but I had to borrow money from somebody to buy the house. And then they set up a payment plan and I could pay, pay, it, pay it off either quickly if I was making more money or Maybe it'd take me 30 years to pay it off. But wealth creation in the country usually comes from leverage. So there are positives to leverage. The problem when you're leveraging highly volatile assets is that you, you get hit and the leverage hurts you the most when you're in your worst period of time and it forces your hand. And so I don't lever my financial assets. I don't lever my investment assets. Uh, I will always make less than the people that are levered, but I will make also lose less than them uh, in bad times. And I think I think my message to your listeners and viewers is stay in the game. Don't get knocked out of the game. And and by the way, it's not the things that you think will go wrong that knock you out of the game because most people will prepare themselves for the things they think will go wrong. It's the things you think you know with absolute certainty that will never happen, that happen, that knock you out of the game. And I'm here to tell your viewers and listeners, anything that you think cannot happen will happen. Okay. And if you think like that, it's good defensive driving. It's good investment defensive driving, if you will. And so when the Terra Luna guys were saying, well, we're going we're gonna to back this stable coin with this very unstable asset known as Bitcoin, which any period of time is trading with a 60 vol, an 80 vol, or a few months back, a 100 vol. Excuse me, what are you doing? You're, okay, you have something called a stable coin that you're backing with the collateral that has a 100 vol on it? Okay, well, I'm just going to let you know that's not going to hold. Okay, someone will break that on you. And so, you know, I mean, this was a conversation that I had and many people, our economic research team, said, geez, we're very sorry. If someone says to you, look, I'm going to lend you 20% on your Bitcoin, put it in my care, move it over here, and I'm going to give you 20% on it. Okay, hmm. the interest rates, the risk-free rate from the treasury is two and a quarter. Maybe it went to three. Now it's at 250. Wait, wait, you're going to give me eight times that? 
okay, that smells like dog shit to somebody like me, right? So I didn't do any of that. You, you understand what I'm saying? So yeah. when that imploded, it's not a surprise to me. Okay, what I think surprised me, and uh, although I shouldn't say that because I should never be surprised, is Bitcoin trading down through where I thought were normal price patterns of stability. And that's the overreaction of leverage. Now, Bitcoin could leg down again. Maybe Bitcoin's going to 10,000. I don't know. But Bitcoin's here to stay. I, I, I do know that because like Bezos, I'm watching the wallet growth. I'm watching the use cases. I'm watching the applications. And I'm like, you know, Kathy Wood's going to be right. Bitcoin's going to trade at a half a million dollars a coin someday. And people are going to be like, why was I not buying it. You know, I, I know it went from 60 to 20, but any point on the spectrum, any point on the spectrum, I believe you're going to make money. And I would say to you, if you hold it for four years, I think we've proven since 2009, if you hold this asset for four years, you end up making money. So that's me. Now I could be wrong. So if I am wrong, I would tell your listeners and viewers, size it appropriately. If you have 1% of your assets in Bitcoin, and so let's say Michael Saylor and I are wrong, it trades to zero. Warren Buffett is correct. Okay. That could happen because what I just said is anything you think can happen, can happen. So now where are you? Well, I'm okay. And your clients or your people listening should be okay too, because they're sized appropriately. Okay. But listen, if I'm right and you have 1% of your assets in Bitcoin, and all of a sudden, because we're right, you have 10% of your assets in Bitcoin, not because you bought it anymore, just because it went up, you'll be happy. This is a technological transformation that's happening right now as you and I are speaking. And I don't want to miss it. And you know, I, I, I read the Wall Street Journal this morning uh, where they're advocating for a Bitcoin ETF. And I think Gary Gensler's in regulatory overreach at this moment. And I'm like, wow, imagine that the Wall Street Journal, imagine five years ago, the Wall Street Journal actually arguing for a Bitcoin cash ETF. But yet here we are. And five years ago it was 2017. Bitcoin was at 20,000 and it went to 3,000 and it pushed back through. Now we're back at 20,000. Know, we could go lower, but this is pretty consistent with the cycles of Bitcoin. Speaking of the uh, Bitcoin ETF, you did seem to have a few hours lead on the Grayscale lawsuit. You you tweeted out, you know, some good news is coming and Grayscale is suing the SEC to try and turn GBTC into an ETF. I keep telling people that this is exactly how Canada got our first Bitcoin ETF. What's your timeline for a resolution on this and how do you see it playing out? Um. Good question. Um, I would say to you, um, the lawsuit has merit. And so let me step back for people, not that I want to give them a legal education on your podcast, but let me just explain this to you. If I am a regulator and I make a decision, you're going to have a Bitcoin futures ETF. And but you're not going to have a cash ETF, okay? I have to be able to explain that to a judge. If I if, if you now bring a lawsuit against me, there are regulations here in the United States that say the regulator cannot be arbitrary 
and capricious in their decision-making related to the regulation. So forcing a lawsuit, now the SEC has to go before a judge and say, well, this is okay. Here are the reasons why. This is not okay. Here are the reasons why. And I think there's going to be a lot of hypocrisy and logical inconsistencies with what they're saying because they're both tied to cash Bitcoin, right? You know that. I know that. So therefore, how could there really be that big of a difference? So I think what's going to end up happening is a coin toss of whether or not the SEC can win that lawsuit. Okay, so what I think ends up happening is what you said in Canada, we move towards the lawsuit and then, and then the SEC takes an off-ramp and they approve one of these Bitcoin ETFs. And so you will get a Bitcoin ETF in the United States because the system still, from a judicial perspective, is fair, I think, and still reasonably balanced. So, but maybe I'm wrong. But I I, I, I made that tweet and then I listed all the reasons why I tweeted that. I, I put the tweet up and then I hear the list. I think the Fed has to change sentiment. I think as you go into a recession, the Fed has to change sentiment. I think the incremental buyer is moving back into the market. I also think the supply chain disruption will end alongside of the remnants of the pandemic. The pandemic uh, becomes endemic. And yes, we're going to deal with COVID the rest of our lives. Unfortunately, my children got COVID over the weekend, last weekend, alongside of my wife. I had it several months back. They avoided it, thankfully. Uh, and it's rough. It's still a very tough virus. It's a bad cold now. It's not a death spiral, particularly for younger people, but it's a rough disease. And we're going to deal with it the way we deal with the common cold or the Spanish influenza and the remnants of it 100 years later as it's mutating. And But we'll deal with it. The supply chain will get corrected. The political system is about to be upheaved again because the midterm elections, the, you know, I, I, you know, Donald Trump was a threat to democracy, but look what these guys are doing. They're not handling it well. They got a 38, 39% approval rating. So, so there will be a ch sentiment change. They'll likely lose the House of Representatives. That will be good for the markets because the markets like that. The markets don't like one party in charge. So all of these things to me are long-term good for the markets. Okay. Now, Here's what will happen. We'll get to a higher level of markets if people start buying into that and think that's going to be stable sediment, but it's not. Something will happen and the markets will turn over. That's what happens. We, hey, hey, Scott, go take a look at the moon. The moon's on a 28-day cycle. The earth is on a four-season cycle. It's rotating around the sun. So you're going to tell me that the human being is going to avoid, avoid the cyclicality of life or markets or political cycles? You know, we're in a political cycle where the DAs have decided that they're going to offer leniency and laxity to criminals. So now the inner cities are rife with crime. So the people are going to be upset with that. And so they're going to eventually put DAs in. They're going to get tough on crime. And then the crime's going to go away. And people say, well, there's no crime. So go easier on the criminals. Don't, 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 you know, and then the cycle will happen again. Round and round we go. <laughs> that, that's life, though. You know, that's life. And yeah. so, so to me, I want people to have perspective. I want them to be measured. I don't want them levered, especially in an asset like Bitcoin. Bitcoin with that level of volatility. And by the way, if we're right, it's going to be one of the transformational things. It's going to be the Amazon of the 2022 2032 period of time. And I don't want you to miss it. And, uh, but I also don't want you to get shaken out of it or unnerved because there are levered speculators in the market 
that are wreaking havoc on your position day to day. You know, everybody is a long-term investor until they have short-term losses. I mean, they have short-term losses, they cut and run on you. I've watched that happen a lot in my career, you know? Yeah, no doubt. There does seem to be a divide between people who are very focused on Bitcoin and people who are kind of both and into Web3. Why do you think that is, Anthony? You know, some of it is emotional. Again, some of it is cult-like where they bought in, bought in. Some of it is uh, uh, the nature of early adopters. You know, go go back. You know, there were ardent uh, people that loved horseless carriages. And there was another group of people who said, that's nonsense, that's a fad. Bill Gates himself said in the mid-90s that the internet is a fad. You could look it up. And, and by the way, he writes about it in one of his books, and he says, I got it wrong. And so I had to make a reversal and an adjustment. That's normal. I've gotten so many things wrong in my life. I think what, what, what makes a strong investor is not getting it wrong, but having the balls to admit that you got it wrong and switching gears to make something better. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think we can do to bring kind of the hardcore Bitcoiners and bring people who are open to Web3 protocols like Ethereum and Algorand and stuff like that together. Is there something we can do or is it just going to be a conflict over and over, you think? Um, it's a good question. I think it's going to take longer than people like, you know? So I, 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 I don't think that you're going to snap a finger and Ethereum and Algorand and Bitcoin are going to run all of the transactional protocols for our civilization. I don't think that. I just going to take longer than you, people would like. You know, I want to go back to 1998. It's a seminal year. I want you to imagine that I'm at my fat box computer with my corded mouse. So the mouse isn't like this. It's <laughs> corded to the computer and I'm dialing up the internet on my modem below the f- computer and it's whirring and burring. And now it's going to take 35 minutes, uh, sorry, 35 seconds for the landing page to arrive. It's downloading. And there is my AOL. The guy's running. He, he says, you got mail and I'm on the computer, right? Now someone comes from in a time capsule space travel, time travel from 2022. And they open the door and there I am at my computer and they say, hey, you see what's going on here? Someday you're going to be talking to Scott McGregor on his podcast, live streaming or recording streaming, and you're going to be in HD. Uh, And oh, by the way, you're going to have a flat screen, cordless mouse and oh, while you're doing that, there'll be a billion people streaming 4K video on this thing known as the internet. Okay, so so my point is, you know, that happened 24 years, but it happened. And so we can't judge it minute to minute. You could look at Bitcoin and these protocols and you could look at the use cases and say, yeah, they suck or some of them are good, some of them suck, but you're not imagining the exponential growth and the transformation. Oh, and I left this out. Let me show you this thing. See what this is? This is a handheld computer that has more computing power than anything that we had taking people to the Apollo space program, landing them on the moon. And it's right here in my pocket and I can access anything. And I got this too. And this whole world of social media cropped up on the internet 
that we didn't anticipate in 1998 as well. So, so when you think of Web3, I don't think people are thinking deep enough or broad enough. You know? Anthony, I don't want to go too far down the political hole uh, with you, but I would like to get a sense uh, of what it was like to just work in the White House. It's such a legendary place, you know, uh, from the outside here in Canada. We just see it as, you know, very historical. What's it like being inside? Well, I'll tell you something, and it's humanizing to Trump, okay, because I want to be fair to him. Even though I dislike him and I think he's a systemic threat to our democracy, I was with him at a time when him and I were getting along in the Oval Office. And it was probably my first day there. It was July 21st of 2017, so five short years ago. And I was sitting in the Oval Office. Um, like, is that a surreal feeling? It is. And I'm going to explain to you why. Number one, the Oval Office is way smaller than you think. And there's a plaster of Paris freeze in the Oval Office of the presidential seal on the ceiling in the office. And Trump and I were looking at each other. And I said, Mr. President, I looked up at the seal. I said, Mr. President, let me end it. We're in the Oval Office. He said, my heart's racing a little bit. I uh, Tell me, did your heart race a little bit when you first got behind that desk? And in fairness to Trump, despite all of his bravado and bluster, he looked at me, he said, yes. He said, when I got here, I sat behind this desk. I said, Jesus Christ, I'm the president of the United States. I'm sitting in the Oval Office. And then the phone rang. I picked up the phone. It was the White House protocol chief. And he said, Mr. President, I'm just giving you the heads up. The prime minister of the United Kingdom arriving at the North Portico at such and such time, you need to be standing there at the North Portico to greet her. And he hung up the phone he said, Jesus Christ, I'm the president of the United States. And, and he said, you know, so you know what happened is I went and greeted her at the North Portico. And then what will happen to you, Anthony, you're going to get so busy that this is going to become an office. And you're going to get so busy. And even though, yes, it's sort of surreal, you're going to get busy and it's going to be wrong. And he was right. He was right. Don't get me wrong. You, it never loses that wonderful mystery and it never loses that wonderful sense of history. But when you're in the throes of what's going on, you're working and you're not thinking about it every single moment that you're there. Uh-huh. Now, of course, I was there for very few moments. I was only there for 11 days, but I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know, I flew Air Force One three times. I was in the Oval Office. I had the opportunity to be involved in this. I did a White House press conference. I stood at the White House press podium in the Brady press room and answered the questions from the White House press, arguably the toughest group of people that asked those types of questions. I was trying to help the president. And, you know, listen, I did something stupid. I got myself fired. I never blamed anybody but myself. But I am very proud that I got Steve Bannon fired alongside of me. Very <laughs> proud of that. I mean, the guy was an effing lunatic. I mean, imagine Trump and Bannon in the White House during a pandemic. I mean, you, people don't realize how much havoc we saved. What did you think about the note from the White House about digital assets and crypto? Do you think America can be a leader in this area? We should be. Mm-hmm. I think this is a missed opportunity. You know, when they when they when they reject the grayscale Bitcoin trust and there's a 35% discount and all of this sort of stuff, I I, I don't understand what they're doing. I, I, I it's too much politics for me. It's too much left thinking or right thinking, and not enough right or wrong thinking. Can we get there? Yes, I do believe it will get there. But you've got guys like Sam Bankman-Fried operating in the Bahamas. He can't operate here. You know, Mm -hmm. there are trades that I see, but because I don't have a bit license here in New York, 
I tell my staff, well, we can't do that. We don't have a bit license. We could move everybody to the Bahamas and then we could do those things, but I can't do those things here in New York. And so I think that's silly. And I think, I think it's going to cause a capital flight crisis an intellectual capital flight crisis. I think it's unnecessary. And, but here's the thing, you know, when new things are happening, people get scared. No regulator, no politician wanted Uber. They didn't want it. And you could go read all the passages and all the hassles that Uber had as it was trying to develop its business. But you know who wanted Uber's got? The people. The people wanted Uber. Okay. And so the people, luckily in a pluralistic society, a democracy, whatever its flaws are, the people speak. And I think the people want to be involved in the crypto currency markets. There's 73 million accounts here in the US. I don't know what the number is in Canada, but it's a big number. How are the politicians going to avoid it? They're, politicians are in marketing. They're the marketing competitions. What are they going to do? They're going to alienate the entire cryptocurrency owners in the United States. I don't think they're going to do that. But it's not moving, it's not moving as quickly as it should be. Mm-hmm. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and we need America to be a leader. You know, the world needs America to be a leader, I think, in Bitcoin and crypto for sure. Let's talk about Sam Bakeman freed uh, for a bit. You know, uh, some people have called him the Jamie Diamond of crypto. Some people have called him the Warren Buffett of crypto. You have a relationship with him uh, through your SALT conferences. Tell me about uh, SBF's importance to crypto and uh, digital assets. Well, I think, you know, I mean, don't go by me. I think Cointelegraph, uh, of, who said that he was the most influential person in the cryptocurrency industry, I think CZ is also very influential. Binance is a, in some ways a larger business than FTX. I think where Sam becomes very influential is that he's willing to be a teacher. He's willing to be somebody that will sit with the politicians to explain what's going on. And I think that's very helpful. And I think he'll he'll be somebody that helps to usher the uh New world. I think. Uh, I think the politicians find him unintimidating, uh, which is good for the industry. And I think he's done some very smart things for the industry. You know, I mean, he's he's been willing to backstop and provide credit support at a time where uh, people got overlevered. Um, you know, in 1907, there were these new technologies called the railroads, and there were. Uh, a big burgeoning steel industry as we were creating a rail system over the continent of North America, Canada, and the United States. And a result of which it caused a boom bust cycle, right? Over levered, the railroads imploded, the steel industry imploded, the banks got caught in that and they were desperate for capital and the banks started failing. And we had the panic of 1907. You know, you could read the book about it, it's a great book on it. And John Pierpont Morgan, the original JP Morgan, stepped in as a private citizen, owning a private bank. He was well capitalized relative to the others. He stepped in and he cleared the capital markets to allow capital markets to flourish. And it was a crisis of liquidity. And that's what's going on right now in the crypto markets. And so Sam has taken that role. And I think he's wise to do that because I think it will lead to uh, stability, and I think it'll lead to regulatory confidence that there are elder statesmen, even though he's a young man, but thinks like an elder statesman that's providing this type of support. Mm-hmm. 
How do you see stable coins uh, playing a part in our future? I think they'll be probably the biggest part. You know, ultimately, you're going to be at a uh, restaurant in Toronto or someplace, and you're going to pay for your meal probably with a stable coin. It'll be linked to the Canadian dollar, and you'll have your smartphone out. You'll say to the waiter, what's your wallet? And he'll tell you, and you'll, and it'll come back, and then you're done. You know, and then the 3% charge that once went to Amex or Visa or MasterCard is gone. And that's a cost savings for both you and the restaurateur. And I think that that's the thing people are not getting. You know, if, if, if I told you that we could disintermediate most third parties out of transactions, if you were interviewing Sam Bankman-Fried right now, he would say, well, there are seven intermediaries between you selling your stock and me buying that stock. It's going through this broker and that broker, the Depository Trust uh-huh. Corporation. And before you know it, the reason why it's T plus two or whatever it is, is it takes time for that to happen. Over the blockchain, those things could cross almost instantaneously. Okay, that's the magic of the blockchain. The blockchain is an ability to delayer the entire economy, to eliminate these third parties and eliminate the permission associated with these third parties. So Stop and think about that for a second. That has a gigantic economic efficiency. It'll allow for more cost savings. You know, this call that we're having right now, I don't think we could have done it in 1985. Maybe there was television and teleconferencing in 1985. It would have been very chunky, very, very hard, very choppy. I don't know if we would have the bandwidth or the data to provide it. Uh, But my guess is it would have been very expensive. But this call is virtually costless now because we're both hooked up to internet and Wi-Fi and we're able to have the call. Uh, Go back to 1985. Uh, I had my backpack. I was traveling through Europe. Uh, My mother made me call her on Wednesdays because that was like Prince Spaghetti Day. That was a time you had to call your Italian mother. And so on a Wednesday, I would have to stop wherever I was in Europe and call my mom. Well, I didn't have a cell phone and the pay phones, you couldn't make an international call. So you, you'd go to the post office, you'd wait online. I take out my American Express traveler's checks and I would convert them into Lira. And the Italian uh, postal clerk would say, go to you know booth number four, wait for the phone line and you could pick up the phone and call your mother. And so I would go do that. I'd give them $15. They'd allow me to talk to my mom for five minutes. I probably lied to her, told her I didn't have venereal disease. I wasn't getting drunk all over Europe. And I was probably lying to her, but I got on the phone with her. Hey, ma, I'm okay. 15, 1985 dollars to make a five minute phone call. I hung up the phone. I left the post office. I got off the line. Okay. Now today, 37 years later, do I have to wait on a line at a post office to call my mom? I can go to any cafe in Europe hook this up to the Wi-Fi and make a wireless costless call to my mom. And so this, you know, we, we have these technological advancements. And so the blockchain is going to advance us like that. And so you want to miss it. Okay, miss it. You had a, a divot, uh, lots of leverage, boom, bust cycle and the railroads, boom, bust cycle and the horseless carriages, boom, bust cycle and web one. Okay, I got it. You want to miss it because of that, miss it. I'm not missing it. I'm going to stay in the game, locked and loaded on the target to grow the business and to impress upon my clients how important it is for them to be a part of it. 
Jack Mahlers talks about dematerializing those uh, intermediaries as well with his development of the Lightning Network. Can you mm-hmm. comment about the Lightning Network? Well, yeah, I think, listen, the Lightning Network is brilliant. Um, if you had uh, Michael Saylor on, I think he would say to you that, that you know, Safadain Amos, the author of the Bitcoin Standard, I think he would say to you that Jack Mahlers and Elizabeth Starks and others that are working on the Lightning Network are going to lead us into the future, that Bitcoin will become the standard. Um, these other coins will have use cases and there'll be smart contract overlays on them, which you can use. But Bitcoin, it'll be Bitcoin. That'll be the standard because of the Lightning Network. Outside of Bitcoin, you know, we have Ethereum, Solana, Polkadot, Internet Computer. You've kind of planted your flag around the Algorand camp. Can you talk to me about mm-hmm. Algorand? What about Algorand piqued your interest? Well, I mean, Algorand has amazing technology. You know, the, when the main net went up, it's never cracked. They've, they sluice through billions of transactions, never cracked. It has a net negative carbon footprint. It's almost costless to transact on the network on like Ethereum where the gas fees are high. Um, and so I look at Algorand, I say, okay, this is something that's so stable. The technology is so smart that you could really build big businesses off of this technology. Now, the problem that Algorand has had is I think that they put it in the hands of loose holders when they had their first coin offering. And I don't think they did a great job of marketing it. And so, you know, what I'm hoping will happen is what happened to Apple. Um, And just to remind everybody, Apple had better technology than Microsoft, a better operating system, and yet it didn't emerge because um, Microsoft was the Ethereum of its time. It was bigger and it was broader and all the software was being developed on Microsoft. It wasn't until there was an innovative breakthrough with the iPod and eventually the iPad and the iPhone that Apple found its shining moment. So I'm hoping Algorand can get there. It needs to build that community. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I am in, unbelievably impressed with the technology and we have a big position in it. Anthony, I think of you as a real leader. You know, as I did some research for this interview and learned about your history and, and the ride that you've been on, you know, basically a kid from Long Island, then working at Goldman Sachs, and now you have a, a, a really long list of accomplishments, you know, some of which I mentioned at the beginning of the interview. What are some leadership tactics that you learned coming up that you think uh, are important and still used today? Well, I I mean, I don't want to oversimplify things and it's flattering of you to call me a leader, but I think one of the things is stay humble. You don't know everything. You're not the smartest person in the room. Um, Listen, and I think for me, I tell people, be focused on the right pronouns. You know, you want to be the person that talks about the we and we're doing it together. You know, people work with me. They don't work for me. You see the distinction? Because mm-hmm. if they're working with me, then they feel collaborative. If they're working for me, then they feel like they've got to wait for my orders. I don't want to be that leader. I want to be a servant leader. I want to have people work with me. This way I can run the SALT conference, run a Bitcoin fund, run a fund of funds, raise some money for some politicians that I like and run my family or try to run my family. My wife runs my family, but you get the point. Do all these different things because I've got a group of people doing those various things. Does that make sense? Totally. No, that's great, man. 
I'd love to end the chat with a plug for your podcast. Uh, it's very diverse. It's very interesting. You always have a great uh, guest lineup and you genuinely seem interested in the people that you're talking to. So a uh, big shout out to Mooch FM and, and that podcast. Hey, I think you. you do a great job. I appreciate it, Scott. It's fun for me. I like, I like doing it. I, I like interviewing authors. I read a lot of books. Mm-hmm. How can people get connected with you and learn more about what you're up to and Just, follow you? you know, I'm at, at Scaramucci um, at Twitter. You can go to scaramucci.net. Uh, you know, I, I try to post there and I have uh, some publications. I don't know how to use Instagram, so I'm showing my age, but I'm, I'm going to start developing myself more on Instagram. That's my focus for the back half of the year. From the bottom, make no half stepping. I'm the dog. I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach, and it ain't no half reppin'. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions. and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. Had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.